Hey everyone, welcome to the eighth episode of the NISA podcast, The Unmentionables. I'm Mia Clark, co-founder of NISA, a new women's wellbeing company dedicated to supporting parents through their fourth trimester recovery journeys. In each episode, we interview either an expert working in the field or share parents' first-hand stories and uncover some of those unmentionables that so many of us experience postpartum but don't necessarily talk about. This is a place to share information and resources and real stories so that we can help shine a light on what really goes down. Because we can promise you that whatever shape your fourth trimester experience takes, you're not alone. Before we begin, I wanted to share some super exciting news. Since the start of the year, um, myself and Nisa's other two co-founders, Eden and Aubrey, have been on a wild adventure, creating our first item for comfort during the fourth trimester. So our patent-pending fourth wear underwear was designed and prototyped alongside mothers and doctors and doulas so that we could offer new mothers a much more functional and aesthetically pleasing alternative to that flimsy mesh underwear that they hand out in hospitals. And now it's finally out in the world for people to purchase. So if you're listening to this and are pregnant, or recently had a baby, or maybe you have a friend who has, you can head over to our website, which is nisacare.com, N-Y-S-S-A-C-A-R-E.com, and get 15% off of your first order with the code PODCAST. So please tell your friends this really was a labour of love for us, pun intended, and we're so thrilled to be able to get Forthwear out into the hands of new mothers so that they can have a more comfortable recovery journey. Some amazing books have been released this year in the motherhood and parenting space. And one of my absolute favourites is To Have and to Hold, Marriage, Motherhood and the Modern Dilemma by Dr. Molly Millwood. Molly is a licensed clinical psychologist and associate professor of psychology at St. Michael's College in Colchester, Vermont. And in this book, she explores the emotional complexities, both internal and within long-term relationships, that women face before becoming mothers. She integrates aspects of her personal narrative and her transformative, disruptive experiences of early motherhood with scientific research and insights and stories that are gleaned from the many patients that she's treated in her private practice over the years who have grappled with self-doubt and guilt and fear while traversing the complex new terrain of becoming a parent. I really can't recommend this book highly enough. Molly really combines meticulous research and notes from the field with this profoundly beautiful, almost poetic writing style. And most importantly, she really captures that wild joy that motherhood can bring to so many of us. But she doesn't shy away from the darker side, those things that we don't always like to admit to ourselves, let alone to others. So I'd like to read one of my favourite quotes from the book that I think really captures the powerful thinking um, behind Molly's work. She writes... We have no trouble speaking to the pleasures of motherhood because those pleasures are as socially acceptable as it gets. However, the dark side of motherhood is also a tremendous opportunity for positive change, for reflection, insight, adjustment and growth. Those dark moments when not banished for being unacceptable can call into question our customary way of seeing things and propel us towards personal growth. Embedded within the full catastrophe of motherhood is the potential for self-expansion and even healing and redemption. So let's hear a little bit more about her experience of writing the book and the topics that Molly explores within. Um, Before we dive into the phone conversation, I asked Molly to share a little bit of context about the subheading of her book, which is Motherhood, Marriage and the Modern Dilemma. For our listeners who might not have read it yet, could you just explain a little bit about why and how you approached writing this book and why you chose to use the word marriage in the title and how you thought about that bias as you were writing? 
Well, the the choice to use the word marriage in the title was that was definitely not a decision that was made lightly. There was a lot mm-hmm. of conversation uh, between me and my editor and my agent, and just kind of a lot of back and forth about that issue because, of course, we wanted to be inclusive, um, and obviously, the word marriage can be exclusive, you know, can can mm-hmm. immediately make some people feel as if, oh, this doesn't apply to me. But I also found that some of the more inclusive terms are also, I think, just too vague and potentially misleading. So, you know, we thought about using the word relationships, but I think if you use the word relationships, that's much too broad, and it could be referring to not only your, your intimate partnership, but also friendships and relationships with, you know, extended family and coworkers. Um, and then the word partnership, which is lovely in many ways, I think also can, mm-hmm. at least still at this point, have some other other connotations like business partnership and so forth. So yeah. I really, it felt, it felt important to me that it be immediately clear what is at the heart of the book, that, that it's a book about the intersection of motherhood and marriage and the ways in which women's well-being and the well-being of their relationships are inextricably tied. And that comes across not only with the, I think, the main title, To Have and to Hold, which is obviously a, a marriage vow, a traditional marriage vow, um, but but also I think what, what I loved about that as a title is that it captures, you know, that those are words that we so strongly associate with motherhood. You know, we have babies and we hold babies mm-hmm. and so it seemed to really capture that intersection. And that is, you know, part of your question was how is it, how, how and why did I approach the writing of this book? And I think really it's, it's perhaps no secret that parenthood places strain on a marriage, but I wanted to bring awareness to the fact that that is actually a central, uh, you know, not a minor or peripheral reason that the typical woman struggles so much in the transition to motherhood. You make a point in the book um, to distinguish mothering versus motherhood. So could you explain a little bit about how you see those differences and why it's important to understand that, sure, it's a nuance in language, but actually the mother's experience of each of those, of mothering and of motherhood, um, may be in many ways worlds apart. Right, and that's exactly why it's so important to make that distinction because mm-hmm. of how different the two really can be. So, so mothering is the, I think of it as the behavior, the behavior of caring for our children, raising our children. So it's the active hands-on stuff and the internal stuff, um, the mental parenting, as I refer to it, you know, thinking about our children even when we're not with them and anticipating their needs, even when we're not with them. So all of that is the realm of mothering. But motherhood is the institution. It, it's the identity. It's, it's mm-hmm. the realm that a woman enters into when she has a baby or adopts a baby or a child and then never leaves. Um, you know, so really it's a, it's a permanent transformation of identity. Um, whereas mothering is a behavior that we are engaged in at any given time or not necessarily. So I think for the most part, you could say that mothering is more visible or, or more tangible, 
while motherhood is an, an internal subjective experience that's really not necessarily on display for others, which is part of the problem. Uh, there's not a lot of transparency about people's internal subjective experience. And I think that it's also motherhood, you know, as that subjective experience is just endlessly textured and complicated mm -hmm. and nuanced. And we can be extremely adept at mothering. We can do it while on automatic pilots, you know, we can be very deserving of others' positive feedback that we are wonderful mothers because, in fact, we're taking care of our children beautifully. But what it feels like to be a mother can be altogether different. Uh, it can be oppressive. It can be a source of endless self-doubt. So, that, like I said, that the discrepancy between the two is why I think making the distinction is so important because we, you know, we may be doing the mothering stuff just fine, but that doesn't mean we feel like our best selves while doing it or that we don't sometimes resent the relentlessness of it or that we don't feel limited or unsure of ourselves or that we haven't sacrificed vital parts of ourselves in order to do the work of mothering. Yeah, I really, um, I think it's so helpful to have that distinction because there is that inherent duality and, and, and tension between them. And I think just separating them out and understanding, you know, the, just the differences between them and how they how they interrelate um, or not is is really helpful. Right, right. And as you said in the beginning, I think there's so little support for women themselves and how they are doing, you know, again, that sort of internal or contemplative aspect of motherhood is given so little attention. All the attention is on the mothering, the ways in right. which we take care of our children are the best ways to do that. Right. The visible versus the invisible. <clears throat> yeah. Right. Right. And the aspect that has more to do with the child and the well-being of the child as opposed to the mother. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, well, the desire to mother and the desire to do other things are often pitted against each other, right? As though they're mutually exclusive and that can be the root of a lot of guilt um, for new mothers. And there's a shame mm -hmm. around, you know, needing to have space from your child as though it might mean that you love them less, which is absolutely not true. And I think, um, you know, if you're somebody that does crave some alone time and one of those people, it can actually make you a better mother once when you have that time too. Yeah. Yeah. And I assume you see, you know, people all the time who navigate this tension. So what's your advice for those who want to maintain some autonomy in motherhood while simultaneously, you know, loving and enjoying their infant? Well, so I think that there are two fundamental tensions at the core of what it means to be human. Um, by tensions, I mean two, these are sets of opposing needs, and there are two of them. So if you'll bear with me, I'm going to try to articulate those, sure, and those yeah. as, as the answer to the question. So so one of those sort of dichotomies or opposing sets of opposing needs is the need for autonomy versus the need for connection. And the other is the need for novelty versus the need for predictability. So So all of us mm -hmm. as human beings, have those two sets of opposing needs and and life is largely about trying to fulfill you know um, 
both sides of the coin on, on those fronts. So in marriage or long-term relationships, those fundamental seemingly opposed needs are very salient, and, and they're often actually the root of a lot of struggle and conflict. So, for example, two partners can be different from each other in terms of how much shared exclusive time they want and need versus how much alone time or separate pursuits um, are needed. So that's a reflection of that that. The, the tension between autonomy and connection and how that can play out in a relationship. Um, the other set of opposing needs, you know, the need for novelty versus the need for predictability, I think something that we see played out in marriage, unfortunately, is infidelity. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's an example of, you know, the need for novelty in the context of this long-term sort of sameness or predictability and how passion dies down in a relationship and so on. So so these core sets of opposing needs, I think, are, are very um, relevant and salient in the realm of our primary relationships, but I think they're also very much activated in motherhood. In motherhood, we're expected to be in almost constant connection, um, and early on, we're also required, really, there's sort of <laughs> no way around that in the early or early infancy period. Um, so the emphasis is far more on the connection side of, of that first equation rather than autonomy. And then similarly, in motherhood, there's a tremendous amount of repetition and sameness. Um, you know, a lot of what I talk about in the book is, is sort of these taboo feelings that we can have in the realm of motherhood, like boredom, um, mm -hmm. when we expect it to be so captivated by our baby or our child, when in fact we often feel bored. And that's because there really is so much um, repetition in in the work of of mothering. So, so if you think about it that way, then of course the opposing needs for each of those—the need for autonomy and the need for novelty—of course those would rise up in response, saying essentially, "Don't forget about us." Um, you know, these are core needs as well, and they're being neglected in the realm of motherhood. So, I think my advice to women wanting that breathing room, um, finding parenthood monotonous and wanting to do something different with their time is, is to realize that those are just our very normal, healthy human needs making themselves known, that those needs are just as integral to the human experience as the other more socially sanctioned needs. Um, but again, in the realm of motherhood, I think they're very taboo. I think that the emphasis is on connection with our child um, to to the great cost, to the great detriment of a woman whose needs for autonomy are just as legitimate. Yeah, and and as you pointed out, I think that's true for some some women more than others. I'm also in that camp of really benefiting from alone time, and that is exceptionally difficult to come by when you're a new mother. It is, it is, and to your point, I mean, it's so interesting that that is such a taboo that there's that there is this um these opposing needs you know there's a real parallel there between all our adult you know relationships but then also right. that with our child and i think it's so interesting that something like needing alone time um you know is perfectly acceptable before you become a mother but then it's as though okay now you have your baby and that's you know very core part of you that you need to to thrive um should you know take a back seat 
Right. It's, yeah, just, it seems very ridiculous when you look at it that way. <laughs> so yeah. Somehow that core, core fundamental human need should just vanish once you have a baby. Right, exactly. Um, and speaking of identity, you um, note in your book that what's often bucketed as being um, postpartum depression is in fact postpartum transformation, which is a very you know common experience of matrescence, which is the identity shift of becoming a mother. And you talk about the sense of loss that comes with that tr- transformation, which I thought was so interesting. And you use the term grief. And like any grief, that loss of you know who you were before becoming a mother physically and emotionally can obviously be profound and sticky to move through. Mm-hmm. So could you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about how our culture conspires to keep that grief a secret and why that's so damaging for new mothers and how you've seen grief present itself, whether that's in your own experience as a mother or you know with your clients? Yeah, so well, grief is an emotional reaction to change, really, um, mm-hmm. specifically to the loss involved in that change, the, the loss of people or things that we held dear, people or things to which we had a strong attachment. And grief is a totally natural, normal reaction. It's not an illness or a disorder. But somewhere along the way, it it became associated with a very particular kind of loss, which is death. Um, And, you know, so that's the connotation when people think about Mm -hmm. grief. If you don't know more details, there's an assumption that the grieving is because someone has died. And babies are about new life, of course, which is the opposite of death. So I think we have a tough time reconciling the feelings of grief in motherhood with the far more prominent and sanctioned connotations of birth and life. That is just a, a, a different, a difficult reconciliation to make. Mm-hmm. As far as the conspiracy to keep this a secret, I think that that's in part about the survival of our species, um, which I think is, you know, maybe a strange way of putting it, but I, but a, a, I think of a lot of our behavior, a lot of our, sort of cognitive distortions can be sometimes understood by looking through this lens of um, sort of evolutionary biology and, and the need for our species to to propagate itself. So nobody would choose grief voluntarily, but we need people to choose parenthood. So we have to deny the losses involved or somehow convince ourselves that we will be immune to them. Um, so I think that's a big part of that conspiracy. We have all sorts of tricks that we use to convince ourselves that, um, you know, parenthood won't be as hard for us as it seems to be for other people. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sort of this, you know, interesting kind of narcissism or, you know, deluding ourselves um, into believing that we have this kind of psychological immunity um, against something that is such a hardship for other people. So it's just, I, I think it's always very interesting to just look at that from through through that lens or from that sort of biological imperative um, perspective. So uh, yeah. as far as how I, I'm sorry, did you want to say something? Oh, no, 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 go ahead. As far as how I see grief present itself, I think that that depends entirely on whether it's being fully acknowledged for what it is. So if, 
if it is being acknowledged as grief, which again, I think we have a very hard time doing because it's so taboo, because it just seems so sort of counter to all of the connotations and associations that surround motherhood. Um, but if it is being fully acknowledged as loss, then I think it just looks like grief. It's, it's crying and sadness and words that capture the sense of mourning, the missing what has been lost. Um, mm. But, you know, I've, I've sat with many women who are in the throes of grief in early motherhood and who are simply just crying and, and articulating how hard it is and how much they feel they've lost. And as painful as that can be to witness, I, there's always a part of me that's sort of rejoicing at the women who can do that, who are not, who are not distorting or denying the, the truth of it. Because if it's being refused or denied or kept out of consciousness, then it looks very different. That That's when it can take the form of um, anger and irritability or uh, depression, anxiety. Um, maybe worst of all would be numbness, you know, a sort of draining of, of the color from a person's life, like the mute button has been pressed on all emotion because there's this attempt to keep the grief out of consciousness and only only feel the joy. So yeah. that's, it, in, from my vantage point as a therapist, that's more concerning than someone who's acutely feeling the grief. And do you think that, um, do you think that, that baby blues is, is part of, of that for some, for some people? Or do you think it's something that's, that's separate? Because I feel like they, the term baby blues, it can kind of, um, it can kind of be a bit dismissive. Like, oh yes, you know. You have the blues, <laughs> you know. Do you think that it's actually part of um, part of what you're what you're what you're talking about with this sense of well? Of I, first, of first, I'll say that I uh, yeah, I agree with you that there's something about that term that can feel um, a bit dismissive. Um, I think that it was meant as a way of normalizing how common it is for there to be this um, you know pretty striking. Um, shift in mood or, you know, that sort of um, low-grade depression that a lot of women are contending with in those first couple of weeks. But but my understanding is that that was sort of offered up to capture, um, I don't recall the exact time frame, but I think it's something like in the first eight to ten days after delivery, there's a tremendous mm-hmm. hormonal shift that occurs. Um, and that hormonal shift does account for a great deal of the kind of emotional uh, ability that occurs for women. So I think that's the way the term was uh, originally meant and what it was supposed to capture. But but as far as what I am calling the kind of typical postpartum transformation as opposed to postpartum depression, mm-hmm. absolutely grief is a is a major part of that. I think a a, um, a central construct in that early transformation that people need to understand is that you are grieving, that this is a period not just of gain, um, but also of loss. It's it's not just, you know, an expansion, a sort of taking on of a new identity or bringing home a new baby, but also there's a a constriction that's occurring. There's a lot that's being put on hold. Um, So 
so absolutely, I see it as as a, a central component of of that. You know, again, what I would consider to be sort of typical um, emotional difficulty, psychological difficulty for a woman who has had a baby, um, as opposed to what goes on in a woman who has full blown postpartum depression. Yeah, yeah, um, and I think you know if we can just raise awareness of that for you know the birthing parent and their partners, it will just yeah, it would be so so helpful. Um, yes. And part of grief, as you point out, is that loss of illusion. Um, you know, so many of us go through because we imagine what motherhood might be like, and we think it will be different for ourselves um, than for others that you talk about. Um, and for many of us, there's that significant dissonance between expectation and reality, and that can be an incredibly hard place to be. So I'm curious: is the only way to kind of unchain ourselves from that illusion by, you know, is the only way to to do that through actually moving through that experience or is there a way that people can kind of do a bit of that work actually before becoming a parent hmm. yeah that that difference between expectations and reality is where a lot of the suffering resides meaning that whatever it is we are experiencing in reality would be so much easier to bear if we hadn't imagined it would be otherwise. Um, and that's, you know, I often think about suffering as arising in that space between expectations and reality. And because mm-hmm. our expectations are often so, so much rooted in illusion, as you just pointed out, we wouldn't suffer from that dissonance if the illusion didn't exist in the first place. So so I think part of the work lies in dismantling the myths of motherhood by having more honest discourse about it at the societal level so that the pictures we have in our heads as we enter into motherhood are more realistic ones, um, yeah. less distorted, not so rosy and, and airbrushed. So, so that, I think, is a big part of the work. But the other part is a more personal individual endeavor and yes partly maybe even mostly that has to occur when we're already in the trenches of of parenthood and we can hopefully learn to recognize when we're suffering because we're in the grip of expectations rather than just experiencing the present moment and riding the waves so to speak Mm-hmm. But, you know, as far as is there anything that can be done ahead of time, I think that to the extent a person can develop a mindfulness practice of sorts prior to becoming a parent, uh, you know, t- to cultivate greater greater self-awareness and the ability to um, sort of take in what the present moment has to offer, I think that I think that can go a long way toward nipping some of these struggles in the bud when they begin to crop up in in parenthood. So I think that, you know, whatever a a person does to sort of increase and cultivate self-awareness and the ability to practice mindfulness, those are tools that that will serve very well in the realm of parenthood. Yeah. Um, So would that for you be that meditation, um, what are some yeah well, I'm glad you're ways that you like that, to encourage people yeah that one of the things that I love about mindfulness practice um, once you really understand what it is is that it 
it is not actually carving, or it doesn't have to be carving out time in which you, you know, sit on a meditation cushion and, Mm -hmm. you know, spend 30 minutes trying to think about nothing. Um, I think that's a real misconception. Mindfulness practice, as I understand it, is really about bringing, attempting to bring your full attention to the present moment and catching yourself when your thoughts drift to the past or to the future. Um, And so it's about bringing that sort of non-judgmental attitude of awareness to whatever it is that you're already doing. So, of course, a a busy mother is going to have a tremendously difficult time um, carving out special time to do mindfulness meditation. But what she absolutely can do is learn to bring a different kind of non-judgment and and a a different kind of of non-judgmental attention to the time that she's spending with her baby or the, the behaviors that she's engaging in in mothering, as we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to getting caught up in a lot of judgment about whether she's doing it right or this isn't what I thought it would be or maybe I'm not mother material, all of that chatter that goes on. Um, that's what I mean by mindfulness, you know, cultivating a mindfulness practice, not so much um, having to take separate time away or time out to do it. Although I think it, it, that can be very helpful for some people. Sure, yeah, but I love that that you can, can you can practice mindfulness all the time just by bringing yourself back to them to the to the present. Right. Um, um, I pra- I practice mindfulness while washing the dishes because that's something right. that I do <laughs> do much more of than I would care to. But I find that if I'm you know mindful of the the warm water and the soap and you know yeah. the fact that we have money to buy food to put you know, on the table that creates the dirty dishes, that that, that um, brings a very different kind of experience to washing the dishes. So yes, that's I an love example that. of what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I really love that. Um, to the first point you made, um, I love this line that's towards the end of your book, and you say, the complex truths of motherhood will continue to make everyone uncomfortable and ashamed until they're articulated readily and repeatedly. Um, I was so moved when I read that, and that's essentially you know why we started NISA to end this podcast, which is called The Unmentionables. And so I'm curious, what are some of the biggest unmentionables that you wish that people talked about more readily and repeatedly with regards to new parenthood and um, and or we, as you know psychologists, where would you like to see more research emphasized? Mm. Well, I think the most taboo facet of motherhood is the negative emotion that we feel about our children sometimes or toward our children or in the presence of our children. And that's true not just in early parenthood, but but throughout, although I think it's especially pronounced early on when babies are so fresh and new and innocent and angelic and we're simply not supposed to think a bad thought about them. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I was saying earlier, I think negative emotion is just as integral to the experience of motherhood. So, and by negative emotion, I, I'm using that term to, as sort of a um, a blanket term to capture the many different things that we would rather not feel um, or that are socially unacceptable, like boredom or resentment or irritation, um, even rage, exasperation. So so the fact that we experience all of those emotions in the presence of our children or in the realm of motherhood is 
still so taboo and um, and unmentionable that I think that we are released from the grip of those unpleasant feelings when we just let them be, when um, we allow them to run their course, which is something, you know, I wish more people understood that, that emotions are never wrong. They only become problematic when we resist them or deny them mm. or try too hard to push them away. Um, but we're, you know, we're not, we're not designed to experience any kind of intense emotion for very long. So if we simply allow it to be and sort of let it move through us, um, then we will be released from it. So, so I think that that's the biggest thing, the biggest um, taboo that I wish we could bring more awareness to and not just allowing ourselves to feel those feelings, but even better if we can speak to them. Um, I wrote in my book about about a friend who, in a, a very angry moment, sort of allowed her, her baby to fall a, a foot or so onto the mattress below and declared while she did that that she hated him. And, and in that moment, that was her truth. She was feeling hatred. But that does not, that's not her whole experience of motherhood by any stretch. It's, it's one facet. And in fact, love and hate are um, running mates. You know, they go together when we love somebody intensely. We tend also to at least occasionally have strong feelings of dislike or even, or even hatred. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that that, you know, the fact that this friend could, could say the words out loud and then could tell me about them that that makes her unfortunately sort of rare because I think most people are trying very hard to deny those feelings to themselves and certainly not likely to broadcast them to other people. But if, if we just look at these as sort of truths of the moment, you know, fleeting feelings that come with the terrain of motherhood, then they're much less powerful and, and they release their, their grip on us. Um, yeah. The other yeah. thing I would say you know, getting to answer your question um, as far as where, what I wish was talked about more readily, where would I like to see more research? And this gets back to why I wanted to write this. I I wish it was far more widely understood that women's emotional and psychological well-being is largely rooted in the quality of their relationships. Because I think there's, you know, there's a tendency to see those as separate things. Like we have our sort of personal mental health and personal fulfillment, and then we have our relationships. And those are so intricately interwoven, particularly in women. Um, and, and research actually bears that out, that it's, you know, it's true for all human beings. We're all wired for connection. We're all social creatures. Um but for women in particular, I think that our primary relationships are sort of like the soil that we're planted in or the air that we breathe. Um, and we can't thrive when those relationships are, are not themselves healthy. So, so I wanted to bring light to the fact that when women enter into motherhood, um, and especially if they do so while they're in a marriage or a committed relationship, which is still the norm, they they feel on the face of it like they're just moving through the normal sort of trajectory of, of life. Um, but actually they're existing in these incredibly difficult circumstances in terms of caring for the baby and for themselves and their marriage or their partnership has been destabilized by this major transition. 
Mm-hmm. So just when we need most to be able to rely on that partnership, you know, when typically when we go through trying times, we draw from our primary relationship um, for strength and support. And yet in parent, in, in the um, transition to parenthood, there's enormous strain placed on the marriage or the partnership and it in itself is destabilized. So it's very difficult for women to, to derive the, the strength from that relationship that they, that they need more than ever. And that seems like just sort of a cruel irony. And I wanted to bring light to that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And as you point out um, in your book, the idea, you know, that babies can bring parents together is, is a myth, right? And there's plenty of scientific right. research to prove that's not the case for most new parents, right? Because right, having right. a baby can ignite our differences and cause immense prolonged stress and be an anti-aphrodisiac. So, what do you recommend that parents to be, you know, prioritize, con- you know, considering as they prepare to be to bring a baby home, so that they can really be um, that strong support network for each other and particularly the partner for for the um, for the birthing parent. And you're asking about parents to be in particular, not parents who yeah. are already in the trenches. No, yeah. how can you best set yourself up knowing, knowing yeah. how, how can you well, kind of separate from that illusion of it bringing you together right. and, and yeah, prepare to, to help each other through it? That's a great question. I, I think there's, there's a delicate balance or, or sort of a fine line between normalizing those changes that you just mentioned, um, you know, knowing to expect them and that they are to some extent unavoidable and versus being resigned to them or, or just enduring them or accepting them without resistance. So it's kind of like knowing a, knowing a storm is coming and accepting your mm-hmm. lack of power to stop it, but you don't just <laughs> stand there out in the open without shelter and, and let it pummel you. Um, so, for example, a couple should not delude themselves into thinking that they'll return to their normal sex life six weeks after the baby is born. You know, so you mentioned that the, the having a baby can be a, an anti-aphrodisiac. So, so for couples to know that in advance and not think that they will be um, immune to that, I think is very important. But but neither should they go a year or, or more, as I've seen some couples do, without any kind of sexual intimacy. Um, so they can talk about ways to feel close, ways to show love to each other physically and, and emotionally, even with very limited energy and sort of limited internal resources. What are some ways mm-hmm. that they can still be, be loving and intimate with each other? Um, <clears throat> so that's an example of what I mean by that, that sort of high line between knowing, okay, this is what's coming and, you know, we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that it won't happen to us. It probably will happen to us. And here are some things that we can do to sort of lessen the blow. And understanding and, and really honoring each other's different coping mechanisms. So, in you know, I think I mentioned that I'm in, in that camp of really needing a lot of alone time. And that's the last thing that my husband needs when he's feeling um a great deal of stress. He wants 
actually more activity and more connection with others. And, mm. and we've come to, we've come to recognize those very different needs that each of us has and to try to, to honor them and do what we can to support each other, even though we're very different in that regard. Yeah. Molly, thank you so much. This is really insightful and, and great. Really appreciate it. Where can uh, listeners find out more about your work and, and buy your book? And... Well, the book is available wherever books are sold. So people can, you know, go to an independent bookseller if they're so inclined or, of course, go to Amazon. And um, it's called To Have and To Hold. Um, I'm on Instagram as molly.nowood.phd and on Facebook, Molly Nowood PhD. And my website is com. A huge thanks to Molly for being our guest on this episode. Do check out her website and Instagram if you're interested in learning more and put her book at the top of your reading list because you won't regret it. Okay, so we like to end every show by hearing from you guys, our listeners. This is where Nisa's other co-founders, Eden and Aubrey, take your calls and emails about all things related to the fourth trimester. This week we have a voicemail, so let's play it and then Eden Aubrey will take it from there and discuss. I am a 65-year-old grandmother and mother who often thinks back to the birth of of my very first child some 40-plus years ago, as if it were yesterday. The reason it's so vivid is because the moment I touched that little bundle, I realized nothing would ever be the same again. In that moment, I realized that my role and identity as just woman would be turned inside out as I became a mother. I embraced motherhood. I loved it. But I am a little embarrassed and ashamed to say that I did mourn the loss of just being the woman I was before. I never mentioned it out loud. I was ashamed of myself. But it only took the second that baby tugged at my breast and that little cry that I heard that I realized that millions of mothers before me and since, that there would be no turning back. I had a new role and a new identity now, and I came to realize that moment, that very moment, how strong women were. We're wired to be the protectors, the nurturers, the holders of the future. We can be business owners, CEOs, doctors, and still manage to be mothers. Those advantages were not there for me as much as they are now. And I relish and I embrace the women who do take on those roles. I realize I did not need to make a transition. Transition for me from woman to mother happened quite naturally. But I do wish I would have had a platform like Nisa to turn to, just to know that my feelings were shared by other mothers and that I wasn't alone. So I'd like to say thank you to Nisa. What an incredible voicemail. Yeah, we'd like to say thank you as well. And I definitely have a couple of tears in my eyes. That was really beautiful. Very beautiful. And I I don't know if I've heard someone speak to the ethos or the mission of Nisa as emphatically as strongly and eloquently um 
since we really since we started this project that it hits the nail on the head of why we wanted to start start this brand and create the conversation that support women because as the caller says transition you know we name transformations but it's the same it is um moving through life through these 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 phases and these vulnerable times and specifically right now we're talking a lot about motherhood but your identity shifts then and then it shifts again as a grandmother and then it shifts again as a woman that is going through these shifts mm-hmm. and and still trying to connect with who you were before and who are you, you are continuing to be and i it what's strange to me is that i think i saw up to that call the hurdle of transformation and seeing it almost as a negative that like you're losing identity but i realize when i listen to that and and i reflect on it that it's almost a gaining what an incredible privilege to be able to take these these different times of your life and these different movements and build on them Mm -hmm. and I think that's why I want to be surrounded by women all the time (laughs) (laughs) yeah and I think it's both it's it's losing and gaining and it's that space in between where those Mm -hmm. two butt up against each other where I think a lot of that conflict happens but yes to being surrounded by women with uh, big mouths and big hearts who <laughs> talk truly and honestly about their experiences because it gives us all the courage to do the same and to feel less isolated and less alone uh, when those transformational experiences cause that effect within us. So Yeah, and I, I think, as Aubrey said, we want to take this opportunity to say back to that caller, thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for being the reason why we would start something like NISA. Yeah. And so, and please, we invite anyone to to participate. We now have a recording feature on our website, so nisacare.com, and you can leave your message there. It's a, a quick and easy way to do it. Or you can call us, 336-HI-NISA. Thank and you. And we should also give one more special shout out to one of the other reasons why we are here. <laughs> Say hi. Ooh. Say hi in the microphone. and this is Bo yeah all right till next time thank you guys so much for listening go forth okay that's it for today as always we would love if you could take a few minutes to rate and review us on apple podcasts when you're at this podcast game and every piece of feedback really helps us along also follow us on instagram we're at nisa care where we share stories and information about the unmentionables of the fourth trimester and parenthood so join us there The NISA podcast is recorded at Strange Magic Recording, produced and edited by Robbie Haynes and Tony Lazara. The theme music is by Electrolane.